0: Hey Chris, I am currently in Torun, Poland where Copernicus was born. I am a South African working in China meeting my Polish family from my biological father's side for the first time. I was his dirty little secret for 26 years, so I am meeting my grandmother, auntie and cousins for the first time at 27 years old. And dropped acid with my youngest cousin only a week ago. I love how you nonchalantly slipped in that your book is finally finished in the Abby Martin episode. I am so excited and it's about time. Sending loves and hugs to you and the podcast family.
1: Sweet Jesus. I just want to take a moment to to pause and ponder all the incredible things that were in that very brief little audio clip from Poland. Good Lord, Uh, thank you for including us in this incredible moment in your life and for sharing all that fantastic information. I hope that trip is going well. I think this one just came in recently, so it's, uh, it's probably happening even as we speak. Thank you so much for sending that out. Let's listen to a few more. Why not? Hey,
2: hi, Chris. Hello, Chris. We are Veñata and Mikel and we are uh, here in the Basque Country in the Camino of Santiago. We are offering some food to the pilgrims. Yeah, helping people. And we just want to say hello and thanks a lot. You have
1: helped us a lot. Keep going, Chris, please. Keep going. See you. Bye, 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 bye. Bye, Chris. (laughs) Oh, man, you guys are great. That, That is the sound of spaniards speaking english uh, that is an accent i'm so familiar with and have come to love so much in my time in spain so thanks guys muchas gracias un abrazo muy fuerte all right let's do one more before we get down to serious business hey dr chris ryan my name is uh, jack ryan <laughs> no relation I'm out here in uh, Detroit, Michigan
2: right now, actually at an automation facility, working. Uh, It's
0: my seventh day in a row. I'm tired, 10 hours a day. I know there's people out there working a lot more than me. Um, I just wanted to let you know that you have a voice in the working class, too, man. I listen to you almost every day. Uh, I like that you're breaking the taboos about society, man, about sex, about drugs, fucking rock and roll, all of it, dude. You're doing a killer job. And, uh, you know, I might not be out on some nature walk right now, but I want you to know you're still in the working class, bro. Keep it up, dude. Thanks. Radio Mano Papachango.
1: Thanks, Jack. I really appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, to all of you who are working right now and uh, sneaking in a little podcast listening on the side, greetings, much respect. I'm sitting in a town, a little public square in a town called Crestone, Colorado. I first heard about this town a few years ago. Uh, I think I was reading something about... Uh, about death and and alternative approaches to burial and i think if i'm not mistaken crestone is the only town in the united states that has a permit to do sky burials in the sense of burning bodies on a pyre um yeah so i read about that and uh, heard that it was a, a funky little town tucked in the mountains and indeed it is I'm just at the base of a range called the Sangre de Cristo mountains the blood of Christ they, a lot of them are above 14,000 feet it's a pretty dramatic beautiful spot uh, this is like a little hippie enclave in, uh, surrounded by hardcore rancher farm uh, territory so it's uh, it's got a little bit of a feel of I don't know West Berlin in the 80s maybe those of you who are old enough to remember that stuff and um, so Cassie and I drove over from, we were in Telluride for a while and then we went down to Durango, cut across uh, east from Durango through the mountains over Amazing Pass and uh, we spent last night camping near Zapata Falls and the Great Sand Dunes National Park and now we're heading north from here I'm going to spend a night or two here in Crestone, and then uh, roll on north to Denver and Boulder, and then probably turn back west from there. So, if you're in Denver or Boulder and want to get together, uh, drop me a line at christopherassistant at gmail dot com, uh, or you can reach me through the website, tangentially speaking, or ChrisRyanPhD.com. You'll see the contact under Chris. Chris and uh, yeah, drop me a line. Maybe we'll get together some sort of a regional meetup in the next few days. So this is August 1st. I'm going to be releasing this. I hope later this afternoon, if I can find a place with Wi-Fi. So we're looking at uh, this weekend, early next week, probably for Denver, uh, Boulder. If you hear this after that, I'm already gone. All right. This week's guest is, uh, an amazing woman named Lane and I need to look at my email to remember her, how to say her last name because it's complicated. It's, uh, where is she? Kalbfleisch Kulpfleisch, which means veal in German. Anyway, Lane, as you will hear, is a brilliant woman, uh, a neuroscientist. She is especially interested in her, most of her research has been focused on The intersection of what we might call disability or um, deficit, cognitive deficit, and extraordinary abilities and these things often go together if anyone out there has seen rain man you know what i'm talking about someone who can't handle dealing with the waiter but when the box of toothpicks falls on the floor looks down and says 876 and knows how many toothpicks are on the floor so there there's some sort of interaction between extreme capacity and incapacities and that's what her research has been focused on she's great i found her at a place called ghost ranch uh just about a week ago down near taos between santa fe and taos new mexico uh wallace j nichols um jay who is a marine biologist who was on the podcast five or six episodes ago i'll give me a fucking break man This is what happens. You pull out a microphone, and somebody else pulls out a chainsaw. Uh, anyway, Wallace J. Nichols put me in touch with her because uh, he saw a post that I was in Santa Fe. He's like, "Hey, you should go go up to Ghost Ranch and talk to Lane if she's around." And she was, and I did, and that is what this episode is. So wonderfully spontaneous, and uh, yeah, serendipitous. That we got a chance to sit down with her. This was uh, really wonderful. Ghost Ranch is an amazing place too if you find yourself in that part of the world. Before I get to this episode, this conversation with Lane Kulpfleisch, a few thoughts I've been having about, uh, well, spurred by travel. Uh, I guess it's something I think about a lot, but it becomes very apparent when you're driving through these mountains and We were in Telluride, went up on a a tour guy in a four-wheel drive, took us up to the highest pass up there. I think it was 13,000 feet uh, Imogen Pass, it's called, above Telluride. And you look down at this beautiful little village and waterfalls falling into the Box Canyon. And there's this uh, massive sort of flat, hill upstream from the town downstream from the waterfalls nothing grows on it and it's easily the size of the town itself and what it is is the slag the waste from the mines full of toxic chemicals poisons it's a mountain of poison And this is the thing. When you drive through Colorado, drive through anywhere these days, and you look at nature in quotation marks, what you're seeing is destruction, devastation. What you're seeing is what's been left after the mines have come, cut down all the trees, to burn in the process of smelting the ore or to build their buildings and their trolley systems and all that to transport everything. And then the mines run out and everyone leaves and what you've got are ghost towns and poison streams, poison rivers, clear-cut forests, topsoil washed away. And it's it's a funny thing because, you know, the struggle in my life and I imagine in your life as well, uh, one of the central struggles is trying to remain positive and yet not be a fool, to be conscious and aware of what's going on. And what's going on is, I think, the final stages of the destruction of the natural world by a species that's just out of control um and that's something that obviously i talk about a lot more in in other venues and in an upcoming book possibly but i feel this conflict between wanting to look out on the mountains and say oh my god look how beautiful that is look how the scale of that and and sort of revel revel in the feeling of insignificance in contrast to the massive scale of those mountains. And yet I look at the mountains and I see that a hundred years ago they were covered or two hundred years ago they were covered in pine forest and ponderosa pine and now it's bare rock. Now a seven year old would look out there and just see the bare rock. They don't know the history. Or lots of fifty year olds don't know the history. They just look out and see what they see in front of them. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful if you don't have the context, if you don't have the history, you don't see what happened to that fucking mountain. I feel the same thing sometimes when I look at fashion magazines and I see this beautiful fashion model with a pouty face. And I remember the people that I lived with and knew in Barcelona when I was hanging out with fashion models. And I remember how miserable most of them were, particularly the women, how victimized they were, how horrible they felt about themselves even the most objectively beautiful were subjected to so much rejection and treated like such a fucking product that it got into them and they felt horrible and sometimes I look at these fashion models and I on the surface, it's beautiful, but if you look into her eyes, you see the suffering and the pain and the history and the context. It's the same kind of thing I see when I look at these mountains. The mining equipment left behind, the twisted, gnarled railroad tracks, the, and the people who worked there weren't getting rich. They were just surviving, just barely surviving. and even the people who were getting rich even the managers or the owners of the mining company they're all fucking dead now what did they leave behind piles of fucking poison so it's a funny it's a funny thing traveling around the west there's this feeling of awe and despair and it's one of those situations where intelligence and awareness brings suffering because you see what's happened you see what's behind the, the veil anyway it reminds me of that quote from Cho Trungpa which I often return to in times like this where he said the best way to live life is joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. So, there you have it. I'm out here in the Rocky Mountains trying very hard to participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world. I hope you're finding some joy where you are in the midst of the sorrows that you are uh, no doubt well aware of. All right, I'm going to play you out with a song I've played on this podcast before, but it's been a while. And who gives a shit? You only hear this once a week, so you can't be sick of it already. It's Treat Yo Mama, John Butler Trio. It's about, obviously, Mother Earth and how we need to be treating Mother Earth. Hey, I hope this finds you well, and uh, wherever you are, whether it's summer or winter or whatever the hell you're doing in a factory or out on a trail somewhere... I hope the world is treating you the way you deserve to be treated. Bye.
0: I got a recipe, yeah, you know I cook, and I come up with only good intentions, you know I am i bound by I surely obey, I wanna get my job done like I know I should, get the job done like my mama do me too, only one thing, can't remember, she said, you gotta earn all of your respect, and I don't give away, so we call her O.P., I say, all that shit don't bother me, only one thing. You gotta treat your mama and I don't care what passion is dialing on your I don't care about the cause of you do Only one thing I don't you to forget: you gotta cheat your mama, treat your mama with you mama mama Slap you upside down.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, I am going to apologize from the beginning because it's probably about 300 degrees and my brain is not working, so you won't hear my usual brilliance uh, today. <laughs> but my guest is super brilliant, and she'll make up for both of us. Lane, let me see if I can get this. Kalbfleisch? I spoke. I, I studied German a little bit. I know fleisch is meat. What's kalb?
2: Uh, calf. So it's veal. Oh, veal. It means veal. Veal. Okay, mm-hmm. Lane
1: Veal. All right, mm-hmm. here we are. Uh, this is my favorite kind of podcast because it's totally serendipitous and spontaneous. Uh, what happened was Cassie and I were in Santa Fe yesterday. I tweeted a photo uh, and mentioned Santa Fe and um, Jay Nichols, marine biologist, from probably 10 episodes back. Sent me a text saying, hey, if you get up to the Ghost Ranch, you have to meet my my friend Lane. She's fantastic. And I said, Lane? Who's Lane? And what's the Ghost Ranch? And what the hell? And so a couple hours later, we were here. You weren't here. It turns out you were soaking in hot springs. Yep. And uh, Cassie and I went and camped by the river and came back and we caught you today. And so here we are.
2: Yes. Hi. Yes. Welcome to Ghost Ranch.
1: Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> for finding time for two strangers who fell out of the sky my pleasure um so let's talk briefly about ghost ranch uh that's your current gig at the Mm -hmm. moment there's a lot more i want to get to but Mm -hmm. let's start with this place because it's incredible It's uh, super beautiful. There's a big river running by. Chagas is that the Chagas? Chama River. Chama. Mm -hmm. Chama River, and uh, my understanding is that George O'Keefe lived here on the premises. So, what's? Mm -hmm. How do you come to to here? You're from Michigan, right? Is that what you said?
2: Yes, I'm from Northern Michigan originally. I came to Ghost Ranch on my honeymoon and got recruited.
1: On your honeymoon? Yes. Wow.
2: Yes, my husband and I came out to do a tour of the petroglyph sites of northern New Mexico. And I was a a tenured college professor at the time. And Ghost Ranch has a beautiful program called Jan Term, which is a month-long apprenticeship in the Spanish and Puebloan arts that takes place in January. And college kids come and get credit. And anybody can come, lifelong learners, and and take a, a course and be immersed in the culture of northern New Mexico. So I got invited. To come to Janterm and
1: as a teacher
2: as a as a volunteer uh-huh. they they were short staffed, and they said, "Would you like to come and run our library? Uh-huh. And our library, Cottonwood Library, is the former summer home of the Johnson family of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, right, so I got to come back and live upstairs in the library in in the Johnsons apartment and Run the library, and kind of the rest is history. I've did
0: your
1: husband come with you, or did you ditch him?
2: No, he he did not come. He stayed working in the Northern Virginia area. So he lost
1: you on the honeymoon. Jeez. Yes, life,
2: life kind of flipped over at Ghost Ranch.
1: All right, well. Uh, be careful where you go on your honeymoon, I guess, is <laughs> right. the story there. <laughs> right. Uh, so you came here and you, you volunteered for just that January.
2: Right. It, and then after that, I was recruited to be the dean of the Jantern Program and uh-huh. to... Um, develop that further. And then a year ago, um, we're owned by the Presbyterian Church, but we're run by the mission. And in January 2017, we became our own 501c3. So at that shift, I was recruited to become the education director to program all of the spaces on the ranch, which are art studios and museums and worship spaces and um, outdoor parks and, and things of that nature, all of the the big informal learning spaces.
1: So it's owned by the church, but it's not really a. It doesn't feel like a religious place to me. It feels like it's pretty secular.
2: Its its mission is much larger. It 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 simplifies to um, we open our doors to everybody. God is in everybody. We have retreats that happen um, within the Presbyterian communities, but we also host retreats on spirituality and and other. Um, it, it, very ecumenical setting because a lot of different people bring their worship here whether right. it's a wedding or a, a conference or a meeting. Um, we have relationships in our local community which is heavily Catholic from the Spanish influence. Um, so it's, it's a large cornucopia were geographically in a place that was uh, kind of a, a frontier point for the Pueblos. Um, mm. The Pueblo of Abiquiú, which is 15 miles south of us, was a bit of an outpost. Um, and it, at one point, even the Catholic Church pulled back all of their missionaries um, during a wartime, and the Penitentes emerged, which are a community brotherhood um, that continued to serve the Catholic faith during during conflict out here, so Ghost Ranch land has been. We border Navajo, we border Apache, um, Ute, and and Pueblo territories, and there we have an archaeological dig on site where we have human occupation to eight thousand years ago, um, and so we were donated to the Presbyterian Church in 1955. The last private owner, Arthur Pack, donated it to the church.
1: See the guy who won it in a poker game.
2: Arthur Pack did not win it in a poker game. That was a, that was an owner Cruise. or two back. <laughs>
1: yeah. I read there was a, a historical yes uh, placard display up there. Yeah, imagine winning this in a poker game. Yes, man, I wonder uh, what hand he had.
2: Kind of the 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 gateway to from the poker game. A woman named Carol Bishop Stanley, her husband won it in the poker game, oh, and right. she came out and created the footprint of the Dude Ranch. That you see now out in our grove, where the little cottages are, on the way to the dining hall. And, and Why is
1: it called Ghost Ranch? Do you know, um,
2: there it, the, its very first uh, modern origins. It was a place where a, a group of cattle wrestlers hid cattle and horses. Uh, The Archuleta Brothers are credited as kind of being the ringleaders of that. So they wanted people to think it was haunted back here Uh, so that they could hide their horse and their cattle.
1: (laughs) Right, so they wouldn't come looking around. And then they got caught and hanged out here. Right,
2: right. right. The cottonwood trees outside a ghost house, which is the oldest building on the property.
1: The trees that are still there? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow.
2: Yep. So it has a really interesting colored history of a lot of different footprints and so it's presbyterian owned and led but um, but it breaks off into many different pieces and in many different ways it serves art and science and religion and mind and body and all all kinds of things happen here
1: Hmm. all right folks so if you're looking for a beautiful place to have your retreat Actually, you know what? Yesterday when we were driving out, we went by that log. There's a log house up there by mm-hmm. the entrance. Yes. And there were three women sitting in front on a blanket talking.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And one of the women, as we drove by, she said, hey, are you Chris? She recognized us. She was at the dinner that where I met jay nichols oh my in gosh. santa cruz she, it's town. crazy yeah isn't that crazy <laughs> folks if you if you know like look google this place and imagine how remote it is and yeah we we ran into each other and she was here doing uh like um uh what, what do they call them bachelorette party or mm-hmm. something you mm-hmm. know uh Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, all sorts of things happen out here.
2: People from faraway land, faraway times in their lives meet here. My husband once upon a time was stationed in Hawaii and um, was one of the guys who caught the capsules, the Russian intel that was being dropped from satellites Mm. at the end of the Cold War. And there was a gentleman here during one of the times that he was here with me that they had just overlapped at this Air Force base a million years ago and so they got to talking and recognized each other and I, I see this happen all the time there is this is a place that draws people for
0: yeah
2: reasons that we don't understand but it, it is a pattern and you do see it so it's it's pretty pretty amazing
1: you know it always those sorts of situations always make me think uh, the law of probabilities um you know if you run into someone like that, you must just miss running into people ninety nine times for every time that mm-hmm. you connect, right? right? I mean, if they hadn't started talking, right. you know, hey, were you in the military? Oh yeah, I, you know I was stationed here like that doesn't always come up in conversation, no. you know it's no. uh, so many times we probably do meet people that like you went to grade school with and and it never comes up right. I wonder. I mean, are there really only a thousand people in the world? <laughs> you know.
2: Well, I'll tell you another story to illustrate this. Um, in November, mid-November during Veterans Day weekend, here we have a gourd dance, and a gourd dance is an inner tribal. Dance. It, it originated with the Kiowa tribes, but it's um, stewarded here by the Navajo Nation, the Apache Nation, and it's um, it was a warrior dance originally, but it's used for all kinds of celebration and healing. So we have that dance here, and this year was my first year as education director and being a part of that dance. Yeah. I'm, o- I'm Ojibwe from Northern Michigan. And the very next day, my husband and I were at Ojo Caliente, the historic hot springs, and I was standing by the Kiva fireplace. And a voice behind me said, what are all these springs? I've never been here before. Well, I could have ignored him. (laughs) Um, It was dark and I turned around and he was clearly native. And I explained what the different pools were. And I said, where are you from? And he said, I'm from northern Minnesota. And I said, are you Ojibwe by chance? And he said, yes, I am. And I'm visiting my friend Leah, who's here on a photography internship. So in the course of a minute, we figured out he his family was Bear Clan, Leah's family's Eagle Clan, my family's Wolf Clan. And, um, and I said, you have to come to Ghost Ranch, because I thought, what are the odds that I meet a brother and a sister here? So they come on the following Monday, and we're sitting at supper, and Leah and I discover that we were named by the same medicine man who is from a a part of the Ojibwe tribe that is like a Pueblo. It's land that was never ceded to the government. So this gentleman was from Red Lake Reservation, Harlan Downwind, and so Leah discovered that we had both been named by Harlan um, and Harlan passed last February to, to pneumonia, very sudden, very untimely. Um, and so that was uh, that was a remarkable night. And I thought but this is the kind of thing that happens in at Ghost Ranch.
1: Well maybe that's the ghost.
2: Maybe perhaps. <laughs> yeah
1: the, the lives, the sort of lingering effect of mm-hmm. of previous lives. So speaking of previous lives, mm-hmm. before you manifested here, you had a very different life. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Can we
1: can we talk about both your professional trajectory and also I don't know if it's too personal if you're if you're willing to talk about your um, experience as a Native American Absolutely. and how that happened in your life? Sure. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned at lunch your grandmother was is your connection,
2: right? Right,
1: and, and she yeah.
2: didn't want us to know that we were Indian because of the, the generation of you know, censorship in the schools and the um, you know breaking apart of the communities, and so. So she
1: was married to a white a white guy.
2: My grandfather is German, and she's Scottish Ojibwe, Margaret McLeod.
1: Margaret McLeod. Margaret McLeod, yes. <laughs> so her one of her parents was. Named? Her dad. Her dad. Her
2: dad was an Indian, um, and so at her wake. Um, friends and family came to the funeral. And gr- when I was growing up, whenever something went wrong in our house, my dad would say, Lolly Shadowin did it. And we would all say, Who's that? And he would just kind of wave his hands. So it was always this fictional person's, Oh, that Lolly must have done that. Well, Lolly walked into the wake, into my grandmother's wake. Wow. Yeah. And he had his headdress and, um, as I was being introduced to him, I I said, "You're real." <laughs>
1: <laughs> Always a nice thing to say. To right,
2: right, um, and that was the beginning of of my our family's knowledge, my knowledge.
1: So, what was his connection to your grandmother?
2: Um, my dad, it, it's unclear. There, it's it's unclear. Sometimes it's a cousin, sometimes it's a friend, sometimes it's a family member. And um, last summer, I went back to uh, a family reunion in Hessel in northern Michigan and met my extended family for the first time. And the the cultural days for Ojibwe were happening that exact same time. So I left the family reunion and went to the, the powwow. And there was a woman who had kind of shepherded me through tribal medicine and talking with different elders. And my dad worked for the tribe when he retired from his corporate life. So... I heard her at the microphone, and I walked on, and I, I said, "I'm Beat's cousin, and Beat McLeod." Oh, you're Beat's cousin, and that kind of broke the whole thing open. Everybody knew immediately who I was and how I fit, mm. and um, so that was that was the moment where it my community life as an Ojibwe crystallized. My spiritual life was a few years ago when I was named by Harlan. And I had spent a few years talking to different elders um, in my tribe and with friends on the Pueblos here. I'd had some experiences and said, hey, you know, can I talk with you? Um, I'm an infant. <laughs> I'm I'm an infant in my Indian life. And what does this mean? And so just through a series of mentorships and um, and people just kind of spending time with me, uh, tutored me back into the system and an and elder if they can't help you they will always say um, I'm not the one to help you but I want you to talk to so-and-so and so there's always a sense that you're on a path and that the person is stewarding you to the person who will ultimately um, you know give you a piece of your your identity and when I was named Harlan said it's not unusual for people to come back in their 40s and be named because of what happened Two generations back, with all of the censorship and the breaking of tradition, um, people are just finding their way back. And we're we're in an era culturally in the Ojibwe, where the children of the seventh fire, and there are seven fires in our prophecy. And for instance, the fourth fire was when Indians met met the white men. That was in prophecy. And now in the seventh fire, this is the emergence of the the children who are finding their way back to pick up the traditions that have been lost, to go back to the traces that are left in the path, seeking the elders who are on the end of their lifespans now to try to keep tradition alive. And in a larger sense, what we're doing is we're kind of in that tipping point of, are we going to um, lead ourselves to a path of of destruction, or are we going to get our act together and and figure out how to how to live in global community? And there there is an eighth fire, so I think the story is going to end well.
1: Oh, um. <laughs> it's not the fire that's going to burn it all down. No,
2: I don't think so. Uh-huh. I um, yeah, I heard a teaching of a Mescalero Apache woman in May at Fort Sumner, and she also, in an oral history, told a story of of a future of um surmounting the obstacles that we're in right now that there will be a better time,
1: well, here's hoping um that happened when you were twenty eight said so you you
2: i was in my late twenties I was 20s. in graduate school yeah
1: uh and prior to that had there been Ojibwe, 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 Ojibwe. Ojibwe. Ojibwe um influence in your life or yes w- it, so it wasn't just out of nowhere this nice little white girl like, Oh, wait a minute.
2: (laughs) Well, only we spent our summers at my grandma and grandpa's. My dad was raised on the Straits of Mackinac on the Lake Huron side on a bluff overlooking Mackinac Island. So my childhood summers were at grandma and grandpa's. My great grandpa, Harry had built cabins on the beach and we, we always stayed at the cabins would ferry to the Island. And of course on the Island, there are no cars. So you're biking, walking, um, or riding a horse. And so, Going back in time, the Ojibwe Cultural Center was in town, and we would go to Indian Village. Um, so the, I was surrounded by it in an informal way. And uh, when I was about eleven, my grandmother gave me a book uh, by Iola Fuller called *The Loon Feather*, and. The only regret of my life is not reading that book when she gave it to me, mm. because it's a story about Tecumseh's daughter and Mackinac Island and the relationship between the Indians and the French voyageur. And, um, I read it after she died, and I was just heartbroken because had I read that as an eleven year old i I think a different conversation might have emerged a lot sooner. And I didn't, and so it didn't. yeah, but
1: yeah. Well, that's yeah. that's the way those things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I on the other hand was obsessed with Indians when I was 11. Mm-hmm. That's all I read. I came home from school and put on a loincloth.
2: Wow.
1: I made my own moccasins. I lived in a wigwam I'd built in the backyard much to the chagrin of our neighbors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I would have killed to to find out that one of my grandparents. That's
2: great. You have an Indian you know, heart. Had some,
1: <laughs> yes. But, you know, not the skin, not the hair. Was a little red-headed Indian running around. Um, yeah, yeah. boy. did you ever hear any of the language?
2: I'm learning the language. You're learning it now? Yes. Okay, that's yes. great. Yeah, my name is Badabana Kwe. And Dishnakas and Ganindodem which means I am the first light of dawn woman, the purple light at the first of dawn, and my mm. family is Wolf Clan.
1: Oh, great. Mm-hmm. So that was an interesting transition. You were in grad school at the time, mm-hmm. studying neuroscience?
2: Cognitive neuroscience and so educational science. I just
1: had a neuroscientist on two weeks ago mm-hmm. on this podcast, we talked a lot about brain parasites. Huh, yeah,
2: interesting that, conversation.
1: Yeah, that was his thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. so. Cognitive, I guess he was more of a, a biological neuroscientist and mm-hmm. more into the cellular and, and the, the, the squishy bits. Mm-hmm. Cognitive neuroscience this is ways of thinking, ways of conceiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, um,
2: cognitive mi- mindsets and processes, what the brain does effortfully, what it does in its own natural states. Mm that's cognitive neuroscience
1: natural states that's an interesting concept what are the natural states mm. of the brain I guess sleep
2: sleep attention um, well you could break it into two basic categories in in waking you have effortful cognition things like solving a math problem um, you know creating something but there is a There's a system underneath that that's called the resting state, or the default mode network. And it's what the brain does when it's left to idle on its own. And it's similar to uh, the respiration of your lungs or your heartbeat, that it goes on autonomically. (laughs)
1: <laughs> did you just hear that? I did. <laughs> Some strange laughter. I don't know what, what that was. <laughs> that was the ghost.
2: Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, but it's so, it's an autonomic system in the brain. It's the, the way the brain keeps homeostasis and integrates information and purges information. Hmm. Um, and so cognitive neuroscience probes, you know, what is the relationship between those two systems mm-hmm. and, um, in my case, I'm all, I'm interested in two things, what in the environment, um, calls, what in the environment influences the, our systems of reasoning in the brain and what is the relationship between talent and disability? Because you can meet some incredibly brilliant people who were horrible at school for various reasons and and had things that you know these days we call clinical conditions.. Right. So interesting skill sets emerge. And at the time I was being trained, um, I, I got very interested in that. and um, I was at the University of Virginia. I had been a music major and an English major as an undergrad and found myself through a family friend in, in an internship helping to um, manage bunches of students that had learning disabilities, but were really smart, and so I started knocking on doors asking what, what we knew,
0: hmm. and
2: everybody kept shrugging their shoulders or say we don't know anything, or that doesn't really exist. and. Um, so I thought that's that's a problem that's going to keep my mind busy for a long time. <laughs> Just kind of grabbed hold of me. So was there
1: a personal connection? Anyone in your family with a learning disability? Or-
2: not to that. Not at that time. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's interesting. Yeah. Um, when I was in uh, eighth grade, I think um, my parents told me I had to get a job over the summer. This is back in the days when kids worked over the summer. Oh,
2: yes. I was in that era, too. (laughs) Yeah. Now
1: they get chauffeured around by their parents to parents work all summer. Uh, Yeah. So my parents said, yeah, you should get a job over the summer. And uh, at the time, I wanted to be a psychologist. So I got the phone book. Remember phone books? Oh, yes. And I looked up psychologists and I called all the psychologists in the phone book and said, you know, I'm. 14 or whatever 13 or whatever I was and I need a job and you know I want to be a psychologist (laughs) I mean I I imagine getting a call like that now from someone like get the hell out of here kid (laughs) but one of them was really nice and he said well I don't I don't have any positions available but Mm -hmm. why don't you see if your mom will bring you down and you can tour the facility Mm -hmm. and it was um an addiction treatment center and he probably spent an hour with me. Took me down to the basement, showed me the electroconvulsion um, area, mm-hmm. which at the time this was not long after one flew to the cuckoo's nest. So mm-hmm. that took some, you know, some courage. I think for him to say, "Look, I know this has a really bad rap, but this actually helps people with severe depression. Right. You know, more than anything else we've we've used." Mm-hmm. And then he took me upstairs to his one of his offices where he had um, biofeedback mm-hmm. um, stuff. And this was, this would have been early 70s, so it was still pretty rudimentary. Mm-hmm. But I remember it, he explained, uh, first he, he hooked up my hands to temperature sensors on the back of my hands and and he, there was a visual display and it, he said, try to like raise the temperature your right hand and then lower and, and I was doing it and, yeah. and it, because I'd studied martial arts and I think I was kind of a freaky kid. So this mind-body connection was still quite strong for me. Mm-hmm. And um, and then he explained brain waves and what alpha was and that when I was in an alpha state, they, there was this toy train that would move along the track. Mm-hmm. And the, I, the objective was to try to make the train move. Right. And um, yeah, that was a fascinating experience as a 12 year old or made whatever.
2: an impression
1: it really did mm-hmm. it really did I mean not only the experience itself but as I got older the kindness of that guy mm-hmm. you know to say oh this here's a little kid with some interest you know let's feed that right even if it takes an hour out of my Thursday you yeah
2: know? well I, yeah. I I think about uh you know you think about concepts of of fate and destiny um when I was in high school, I was in a class called New Dimensions, and this was for kids that were achieving but um, were had, had a little extra going on, and that's the only way I know how to describe it. But we did these six-week dives into religion and literature and philosophy and psychology and futurology. And we had to do a thesis, and my, my, cho- my choice was biofeedback. Yeah. I was, I, it, was a, it was a thesis on Descartes, and my practical way of looking at that was to seek out a local person doing biofeedback. And I still have that paper, and I, oddly enough, I, I did that and went on to study voice and English literature and Dickinson's poetry. Never gave it another thought until i got to graduate school and thought i was going to be a college president um, because president I, a co- yes i've been working in a nonprofit for college honor societies and was um, working with about 25 colleges and universities right out of college and um, i was enjoying that and i thought oh well i want to go in, and study policy and you know, be that, that's the way I conceived of being a leader. And then I got to the University of Virginia and a man named Ernie Ern, who now retired, but he was uh, the vice president of student affairs and um, retired as the senior vice president of development. And he said, You know, our learning needs center just lost our assistant director. They could really use your help. So it was one of those, again, a flip. And all of a sudden, here are about 25 people that have these wickedly smart and these amazing talents, but don't fit the school mode. Um, And I didn't know anything about that, but I became intrinsically interested in it just because all of a sudden I was surrounded by people like this, that medicine and psychology were telling me don't exist. And education says, no, we don't serve. And I, I thought, well, this is our brain trust. These are the people's minds who shift paradigms and solve really tough problems Um, And so I completely flipped from policy into educational psychology and then again into cognitive neuroscience because um, public education I spent a year um, teaching in public school and I thought we're never going to get there this way and I went back to the University of Virginia and they, um, they said we don't know how to educate you to do this but we'll fund you to be here. So I was essentially patroned in my PhD by the Curry School of Education, but I went to medical school for two years because I wanted to know what the medical students were being taught about the brain and about the mind and Mm. cognition. Um, I worked in a a rat laboratory, won uh, an NIH award on the first try, which is very hard to do, to look at uh, an animal model of ADHD and Ritalin. And there were circumstances in, in... Um, pharmaceutical world and my career where I didn't get to do the rat project, but then I ended up back in humans, which is where I really wanted to be, um, and did my dissertation looking at quantitative EEG signatures of really bright boys with attention deficit disorder, um, comparing them to normally functioning kids and normally functioning kids who are also very smart to try to look at um, how their brains shifted between tasks and how they transitioned. Um, Because they're notoriously not good at transitioning, they can fall into something very deeply. But, um, you know, bringing bringing a child out of that state or anybody with that kind of a a genome out of that state is hard to do.
1: The state of Um, Extreme focus?
2: Focus. Yeah, yeah. Which hyperfocus can be a positive or a negative. Right. It's also known as a genius. It can be – well, it can be perseveration in autism where there's – that perseveration is not productive. It's just repetitive. I see. But it can also be hyperfocus, which leads to flow, which leads to innovation and lots of really good, juicy stuff. Right. Um, And so – that, that was that question, and I, I went on to learn functional MRI in a postdoc at Cornell, and then that was right before 9-11, and I came back to the D.C. area two weeks before 9-11 um, and took a job in Fairfax County Public Schools to create their science and social studies honors curriculum. Then I was recruited into the Krasnow Institute at George Mason University, which is where my lab was, And why I'm telling you all this is that the the man who created that institute, Dr. Harold Morowitz, um, a biochemist, uh, very early in my recruitment there, he flies out of his office one day and he said, you took on the mind-body problem, you know, and he was reading not my high school thesis, but my comprehensive exam I'd written at the university as a compilation of all of those fields. Mm And he was absolutely tickled to pieces. And so, you know, that led to a, a friendship and a mentorship of, of, you know, he's a biochemist looking at the uh, um, the citric acid cycle in the generation of life from cells. Um, so we were field-wise worlds away from each other, but we had this mutual passion for the mind-body problem. And he did a lot of thinking and writing in Teilhard de Chardin and, computational neuroscience he was even out at the santa fe institute and murray Gelman was the first person to show me santa fe mm. because i came here and harold said murray will show you around and so murray took me uh, to the folk art museum mm. and to supper and made me a tea at his house and we talked about georgia o'keefe and so you think about all of these things because then that was two thousand and seven, and now here I am on ghost Ranch where O'Keeffe lived and painted and yeah um, you know trying to imprint a, a quality of education and retreat here that I think can be a model elsewhere because of the enormous peace that's here and the awe from the natural beauty, but also the the Presbyterian commitment to the arts and the sciences and religion and the things that happen on ghost ranch. So,
1: (sighs) you know, as you were talking, there's so many threads. uh, And it's so interesting to see how lives, I mean, this is a a truism. This this is sort of a trivial thing to say, but how lives, um, an individual life can take so many of the threads that start in childhood and they end up interwoven as we grow. I was thinking, for example, your interest in Emily Dickinson. Mm -hmm. If I had to name an American author who would probably be diagnosed as far from adept, you know, socially adept, even to the point of maybe disabled in a way, Uh, and yet an absolute genius right right I mean she Mm -hmm. lived in isolation she rarely left her house did she even publish when she was alive or was it all discovered after she died I think I don't remember maybe I'm thinking of Fernando Pessoa but I know there was a trunk of her work that was discovered Um, but she must have had something published because I think she had correspondence with
2: She was. She was involved with the Transcendental Movement.
1: Yeah, with Emerson or or Thoreau or uh, Whitman. yeah, Yeah, all of
2: those folks. Yeah. Um, That's
1: what I studied as an undergrad, the Transcendentalists. You was, did. Yeah, yeah, I
2: fell yeah. in love with them in my poetry studies. But my fascination with her, I was also taking courses in women's studies at the time. And mm. there was a book that came out the year I was deciding to do this project by Mary Field Belenke called Women's Ways of Knowing. And it was kind of a a, a series of voices that women have, um, you know, a passive voice, Uh a a voice conceding to authority, you know, like a book, The Ultimate Truth. If it's written down, it must be true. Mm. Um, A victim's voice, a a power voice. And as I was reading that for, for that class, I was reading Dickinson's poetry and all of her voices and the fact that the fascicles were cut, those bundled poems that she had so carefully ordered. Somebody cut them apart and... And I thought, okay, we can never retrace the sequential history of these, but I would love to try to make sense of her poetry by voice. And so that my undergraduate thesis was trying to group her poems by voice, Hmm. according to that. That's an
1: interesting concept. Yeah. Yeah, because there's such amazing fragments. Mm -hmm. They're written as... I mean, as you say, they were in order at one point. But now we just read them as these little, even untitled, numbered fragments. Right. Um, Yeah, what is it? I I could not stop for death. So death kindly stopped Stopped for for me. me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I used to know a bunch of her stuff. And the
2: brain is wider than the (laughs) sky. Yeah.
1: yeah. (laughs) Um, You're talking about the um, states of consciousness, the brain-body problem that's not really a problem but uh, are you familiar familiar with john lilly's work Mm-mm. he was a fascinating guy he um you know he's one of these super geniuses i think he had his phd at 18 or 19 from oh mit or caltech or somewhere mm-hmm. like that uh he did early work on communication with dolphins and dolphin intelligence. He ran a lab in the Bahamas yes. in the early 60s. There was a movie, I'm familiar
2: with this work. Right, The yes. Day of the
1: Dolphin was mm-hmm. about him. He quit that when he realized that the military was starting to use his research.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Familiar with something mm-hmm. you said earlier. Um, and then he went to California in the mid-60s and became... He was part of this community of intellectual hippies who were using psychedelics to try to um, investigate cognition mm-hmm. as as a lot of people were in those days and he wanted to try to answer the question of whether consciousness exists as an a as a freestanding state or if it's only a state that is in response to stimulus. Mm-hmm. And so he invented the sensory deprivation tank as a way to get at that. Mm-hmm. And he was a big guy in uh, es- Esalen in the early days mm-hmm. and all that.
0: Sure. So
1: yeah, it sounds like he he, and, he was asking some of the same questions that you were getting into. Right? When we we're talking about um, cognition and original states. Mm-hmm. So this this question of Um, extreme intelligence in people who are um, deficient in what we would call social skills or I don't know in in
2: or school skills school
1: skills right so is ADHD you know from my perspective it's very tempting to say ADHD is simply a diagnosis that's placed on people who think differently, who learn differently, who experience the world differently and we're drugging them into compliance with a factory educational system. Mm-hmm. But I'm hesitant to say that because I don't have any personal experience. Right. I don't have kids. Right. And I know that there are people who would say to me, yeah, that sounds great, but look, my kid mm-hmm. can't sit still for 2 minutes. Right. So is it that there's a a wide spectrum of experience in this, or is there, a, is there a, a qualitative difference between the kid who just is totally dysfunctional versus the kid who just gets bored quickly? Mm-hmm. Are we talking about the same thing? What, what's the, going on? That's
2: there? one of those tipping points when you're, you know, when I work with families, and, and, you know, a parent will say, Is my child hyperactive? And one of the things you ask, Are they challenged in school? you know is is that restlessness coming from being bored um are they getting enough sleep do they happen to be an allergic kid on inhalers because corticosteroids can make children hyper um is there an emotional trauma that's Mm. that's present do you Um, look
1: at diet and microbiome
2: um i have not personally gone into that because i'm not an expert in it Mm. i encourage I I help families build uh, teams, and where my expertise leaves off, I help them identify people that they can work with. To like what
1: you were saying with the elders earlier. Mm-hmm. What I can't help you with, I can introduce exactly. you to someone else. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Exactly. Um, and so you know, there's a lot that you can do to scale back to say it it, it could be an attention problem, but there's so many things that inform a potential a, the deficit behavior that really if you want to address it you have to figure out what the right origin is and if you're giving someone medicine but it's a sleep issue or an anxiety issue or one of these other factors it won't it won't help so attention is such a broad construct um, and the problem clinically is that some of our disorders are continuums, like the autism spectrum. Others are containers, like ADHD. You're right. inattentive. You're hyperactive. You have both. Um, and so some ways of identifying clinical problems are the, the container approach, and some are have a little more nuance. Um, and yet, in the same person, these kinds of conditions can coexist. So. Um, The way my thinking has evolved, and not in a practical fashion, but in a theoretical fashion, is that um, all things are possible in a genome. You know, people are our brains. There isn't one brain alike. It's like your fingerprint. Um, And so who is to say that there are not these exquisite shades of skills and nuances and, and strengths and weaknesses that one person possesses? The, the issue or the the challenge is that our even our modern technologies are still not sensitive enough to capture um, MRI for as expensive as it is for the beautiful images it produces you still cannot see the titration of a drug in the brain mm. um, when I was building my laboratory I, I had this discussion with with someone who does MR spectroscopy which is taking a, a sugar cube size piece of brain and imaging just that piece and in order to do that you only can see seven metabolites in the brain, creatine, choline, I mean, the the precursors to the amino acids. And so when you think of it takes all that technology and only taking one little sugar cube sized piece of brain in order to see just those seven precursors, we're not even close to looking at what a drug would look like, lithium or Um, which is the great hope that can we see these mechanisms of action. And uh, I remember the example that was given to me and and somebody in the class said, well, why couldn't we see a a drug action in the brain? And the, the the MRS expert said, well, you would have to put them in a scanner for over 24 hours, which you're not supposed to do for radiation. And you'd have to give them a lethal dose of the drug in order for it to concentrate heavily enough in that piece of tissue for us to begin to see its action. And so, you know, for all of our technology, we still really only have, like, my dad would say going fishing with a hammer. (laughs) Um, We still don't have a lot of nuance. And
1: so many of the drugs that are used in psychiatry are uh, the mechanism of action is totally not understood and Mm-mm. was arrived at through serendipity. It was a chemical being used for something else or tried for something else, and someone noticed, like, oh, people are sleeping better or people right. are, you know, getting erections. Mm-hmm. I, I think Viagra was, mm-hmm. in, you know, a mistake. It was a heart drug, I think, originally. <laughs>
2: yes, right, yeah. To treat. Mm-hmm. yeah.
1: So it's funny, the I, I often think about this, the arrogance of science where... So many scientists act as if they understand what they're talking about. And yet, if you dig a little bit, you find out that there's like a giant sea of ignorance underlying virtually everything that's going on.
2: Right. So Science we, is a tool. Yeah, yeah, it's a tool. It's a tool One
1: for of many. exposing ignorance is what it's best at. It's, it's mm-hmm. best at illuminating the things we don't know, mm-hmm. which is w- strange that it gets flipped into this sort of arrogant... Uh, petrified world view so quickly you know it's yeah. it's so hard to change the mind of a doctor who hasn't you know been to med school in 30 years right and or, yet,
2: and the authority that people assign to that doctor because yeah, of
1: that yeah 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 it's Cassie and I were talking about this recently she was I've told the story before but she was feeling um uh, distress over the fact that she wanted to help someone but the situation was so complicated and there was so much she didn't know
0: mm-hmm.
1: and she was feeling inadequate and my perspective was like, holy shit, that's what makes you great. <laughs>
2: right.
1: Your acknowledgement of what you don't know because when right. you don't acknowledge that is when you hurt people. Right. You know, mm-hmm. Walking into it, acting like you've got it all figured out. Right. And I understand the need for that emotionally mm-hmm. um, for mm-hmm. clinicians, but it's still dangerous. Mm-hmm. In your work with extraordinary intelligence, ally, let's call it imbalanced intelligence, maybe. maybe that's the educational
2: is. term is twice exceptional. <laughs>
1: twice exceptional. Mm-hmm. So exceptional, twice exceptional in the sense that you don't fit into the normal sort of parameters, but also exceptional in that there's some incredible ability. Right. So mm-hmm. people are thinking of Rain Man, you know, mm-hmm. all the... The toothpicks fell on the ground and he said, you know, 8,224. Yeah. Like, so that that's real, right. right? That actually happens. Yes. So do you have any opinion on whether these are capacities that we all have that are shut down in most of us? Or is this something that's released in a certain kind of brain that isn't occupied with other tasks that most brains are sure yeah how does that work yes
2: I, i think that's i think that's where the story lies um in my work in autism one of the things that we learned was that the back of the brain tries to do the job of the entire brain um sensory overload in people that have autism happens because the sensory cortex in the back tries to hang on to everything Um, Think of a child who's about seven years old and and that's a time when attention You know, is starting to go into the frontal lobes and an autistic brain will say, oh, no, I've I've got that. I can continue to do that function. So there's there are delayed developmental pathways in the autistic brain that because they're delayed, they don't get to the address they were originally scheduled to go. They start in one place and they end up in a completely different place because they were kind of held up by that traffic light. And, um, and so those alternate pathways, there is functional connectivity in an autistic brain, but it's much different. And when you look at the resting state, that state I was talking about before, where uh, when the brain idles on its own, there's a, a deep connectivity where all the hemispheres of the brain kind of lock onto each other. Um, functionally, it almost looks like the brain is talking to itself, because the language networks get involved, the, the um, sense of self in the back in the rostromedial cortex gets involved. Um, so there is a close there's a system that's created. But when you look at the resting state of children with autism, it's still there, but it isn't as intrinsically connected and so the back may be firing at one frequency and one timing pattern and the, the lateral frontal lobes are firing differently than even the frontal cortex. So you can see this and we know the resting state is influenced by a number of diseases. It's documented in Alzheimer's, it's documented in schizophrenia, it's documented in aging. Um, and so the state is, is flexible, but in autism, it's, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't cohere as well. And so some of the things that you see that people with autism can do, that, that calendar calculation, the, the counting abilities, there are skills that I think are, to use your word, released or at least disinhibited. Because in a typical brain, because it's so functionally coherent and wired together, there there is capacity in certain areas to do more than it does. But it's but it stays homeostatically balanced as an overall system. But in these cases, when there's a release of some kind due to altered functional connectivity, or injury, or you know drugs, um, you know you think of all the different ways you could influence it. Um, you do see things kind of pop out. Um, in aging, There, are, there's data coming out that people, um, as they age, are more creative. And we know that the language areas, the temporal poles, start to unbuckle a little bit. The gray matter releases a bit or pulls back. It isn't as functionally tight and organized. And that is correlated observationally and behavior, behaviorally with people thinking a little more creatively.
1: That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I read um, this morning a line, I forget who it was from, but they said genius is the ability to, I'm paraphrasing, but genius is the ability to return to childhood at will. I I, I love that. (laughs) I took it to mean something about that creativity, that wild Mm -hmm. anything goes Mm -hmm. of a Mm five-year-old that if you can do that in your lab at 50 and just think totally creatively outside the box, you might come up with something really interesting. Definitely. And it's interesting to hear you say that the aging process sort of returns us closer to that Mm -hmm. naturally. Mm -hmm. Now when you talk about the resting state, two questions. First of all, are you talking about a meditative state or what is the resting state? How do you provoke it in someone or recognize it?
2: So it's the resting state emerges when you're daydreaming, when you're self-refle- in self-reflection, um, when you're sleeping, uh, when it can be induced in meditation.
1: Ah. Mm-hmm. But isn't sleep a totally different state from meditation? I mean, there's it all is. sorts of housekeeping things going on, and you know, if you're in REM or not, or sorry, mm-hmm. REM in Spain they always say mm-hmm. REM.
2: REM, Yeah,
1: <laughs> right. uh, REM. Right.
2: Well, in in sleep is a little bit of a different case. It the brain moonlights. I I describe it to people that every every piece of the brain you might learn that that has a function for doing X while you're awake it has a different job when you sleep and hmm. so every every waking job has a moonlighting piece to it and so when you sleep the brain shifts into a different uh, a different mode of you know getting rid of things temporal compression that purges purges information and sometimes we experience that as dreams um you know so there's there's a lot of housekeeping that goes on when you sleep but
1: yeah the other thing I wanted to ask you, when you talked about how the autistic cognitive patterns, I guess mm-hmm. that you're picking up with functional MRI, mm-hmm. um, are different from normal, normal in a non-judgmental way, of course, typical, typical. let's say, yep. um, are is there a commonality among the autistic brains that have been studied? In other words, is the ab atypical uh, pattern? Are they? Is there some Mm -hmm. uh, commonality among them? Or is each one different?
2: Um, Yes, yes to both. There is a there's a common pattern that allows us to have a conversation about the autistic brain and what happens in most people Um, in Asperger's syndrome, which was taken out of the United States. A diagnostic and Statistical Manual in its latest version, um, um, you do see behavioral differences. Um, I'll tell you a story about two twins whose case study I was trying to publish, and uh, genomically 99.99% the same had their had their genetic data from Johns Hopkins. Um, Uh, high school 16 years old and one brother was very much Asperger's so very verbal very social um, extremely high functioning and his twin had uh, high functioning autism so he was not as verbal he was not as social um, experienced overload more quickly um, and so you could behaviorally see the differences between the two and how they related to you socially but um, when i tested them in our imaging protocols they were doing a really complex visual reasoning task and they were equally fast and accurate they both you know 98 percent but the differences in their brains of how they achieved that task were different were different um, and you would say, the, an imaging scientist would say, well, that's an N of 1 and an N of 1. You don't have statistical significance. Except that when you looked at the brain differences in their functional connectivity, they laid on top of the gray matter differences that have been published in the literature that define a person with high-functioning autism versus a person with Asperger's syndrome. And so the brother with Asperger's, his reasoning systems were in the frontal poles and in the visual cortex, primarily his brother's reasoning systems were more in the lateral frontal lobes um, and some of the sensory motor areas. And I wouldn't have thought a thing about that either, because when you do an imaging study that includes a bunch of people, you always look at the single subject data because the the average will be what everybody had in common. That's how you tell that story. But with these two brothers, because those differences laid almost perfectly on top of the textbook definition of the gray matter changes that define each of those conditions, that got my attention. Mm. Yeah. And so that that's kind of where my scientific story leaves off are in those differences. And so, I've seen them and I see them observationally all the time in practice and working with families and kids. Um, But that goes back to my earlier comment that some of our our spectrum diagnoses and our more container-based diagnoses, um, you have to kind of look at the human organism as a whole and use that with care.
1: And maybe go beyond the, the individual human organism. You said something at lunch That I wanted to to explore a little bit with you about um, what was the phrase you used? Uh, Social brain? Did you use that? Oh, the
2: group brain. The group, the
1: group brain dynamic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you unpack that a little bit? Because that's sure. uh, I'm very interested in emerging phenomena, particularly how groups of people can get together and essentially become a super organism mm-hmm. of some sort. And mm-hmm. it seems like that's sort of where you were going there.
2: Right that so the idea in a group brain dynamic is that you could norm with a tool like EEG, you know, taking an electrical signal from the top of the brain, um, you could s- literally see with a tool, how groups of people are doing in, in informal and formal learning setting settings. So the, the hope of the of this is that, that You could provide a tool with, you know, at the tap of a finger, the press of a button, or, or following a monitor that you could immediately tell um, where groups are are comprehending, where they're curious, where there might be conflict or trouble, um, and speeding up the diagnostic capability of a teacher or a facilitator in service of the goals and objectives of what's happening in the learning environment.
1: Wonder if you could do that in a comedy club so a comedian would know like <laughs> yeah. that back right part of the room you're losing them, and you know there's there's something going on that there. is a great application yeah. absolutely
2: right. oh, well, I'm losing them back there. I need to do X yeah, yeah right, and that's the hope for that tool and i'm I'm working with a group of people at the University of California, San Diego, and Stanford on on that idea and on practical applications to shepherd that
1: idea do you have any thoughts on the idea of of consciousness functioning in a field like for example contact high people talk about like if they're hanging out with a group of people who are using a particular drug even if i don't use that drug i can start to feel high Hmm. because there is this group brain dynamic happening Mm -hmm. i become part of an altered way of Perceiving just because I'm plugged into this right. group, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I. Uh, that was something that I thought of doing when I was in grad school. That was one of the things I was interested in. Like, if there were a way to demonstrate that that really happened, mm-hmm. you know, and you'd have to do it in a way that you, the subject, didn't know that the other people around them were high. Like, even if they were isolated, like let's say they were in a soundproof.
0: Mm-hmm
1: booth with, you know, no airflow between them. And then they're surrounded by people who were, you know, smoking marijuana or something, and then do some sort of cognitive testing to see if Mm -hmm. just being in the physical space would change them, right? Um, Or here's, okay, here's another one I looked into. Uh, It's also related to what you were talking about. I had a girlfriend when I was in grad school, who spoke um, French with her mother, Catalan with her dad, and English very well um, and Spanish. She spoke them all growing up. Beautiful. And one day she was on the phone we were in San Francisco and she was on the phone talking to her mother in French and then her dad got on the phone and she switched to Catalan and then she put her hand over and said something to me in English and then she went back to the phone and it occurred to me watching her there that it wasn't her speaking three languages. It was it was French her Catalan her english her
2: that's a great insight
1: and at the time i was looking into multiple personality disorder Mm. and i read that some researchers had found different signature resting states that corresponded to the different personalities and the states were you know they differed in blood pressure and base heart rate and some of them even differed in ocular pressure so that some personality would need glasses wow. to read and the other personality mm-hmm. wouldn't mm-hmm. and i thought wouldn't it be interesting if i could demonstrate that she was physiologically different right and people that those like her were happening uh-huh. right so that the language wasn't just this brain right. expressing itself in that language it was this brain configured right in that language
2: yes and that that is that goes back to uh you know my education derived question of what in the environment promotes reasoning systems in yeah. the brain because as we've come to understand the brain it's usually talked about this is the brain adding and subtracting this is the brain reading as a single system and in reasoning it's not it's multiple systems depending on what's elicited in the context and that context can be external or internal. I think language does drive uh, a lot of internal state. It's,
1: what, well, we know it's like that,
2: emotion or music.
1: Yeah, and we know that when there's a word for a certain thing in a language, we're much quicker to recognize that thing. Yes. Right? Yes. So for colors or things like that. Right. And so there's no question that language affects cognition mm-hmm. in ways that we're not aware of. Um yeah, I just wonder. I, I don't think we've really gotten deep into that question very much. No,
2: we haven't. There's I a mean, lot
1: further to go.
2: Yeah, we've we very much for as I said before for all of the technology and what we do know, we're we're still in that era where we're creating the primer. What are the basic assumptions? What are what is the basic undercarriage? And a how a connects to b, but but quickly, you know, for education and. Even when I started my career in cognitive neuroscience, there was a lot of conflict because our vocabularies were so different, and I would say, "I want to understand a concept in the brain, like justice." Um, justice. It, it, yeah, like interesting. Higher level concepts.. Yeah, And um, the most famous neuroscientists in the world for concepts at that point defined concepts as a chair versus a tool. Very concrete, object-based. And that was where the field was. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time looping among these fields to satisfy my curiosity, but also to try to understand where the intersections are and, and what we're missing. And, um, you know, part of being at Ghost Ranch and, and working in private practice when I, I came out of my everyday life as a lab scientist was motivated by a feeling that I had kind of run out of runway in the lab. Hmm. That, that I have papers in the literature and, and some, some yet to be published that document how environment shapes reasoning in these different ways. Um, and that was sufficient for me to say, I can go back out into the wild and I, I can help people. Um, I can help families tie together spaces where kids tend to fall through the cracks. Um, I can help people in education and retreat. And I have a retreat called Heart of the Brain, where we talk about some of the mythologies created by public information about the brain and really what people should know to be functioning well and aging well. Um, one example is is in memory. You know, as we were talking about the frontal poles that that kind of unbuckle a little bit. Um, one of the things that I talk about is that. Aging is not a story of loss of memory; it's a story of trade. Mm. And when people hear, "Oh, it's trade, not loss," yeah, immediately anxiety lifts. Yeah, and all of a sudden, which they, improves
1: functioning, right? You know what I mean? Exactly. It's, it it yeah.
2: shifts like going yeah. from Catalan to French. Yeah. It something immediately shifts.
1: You know, I I remember reading a study years ago that. Chinese people didn't lose memory as they got older. And when they moved to the U.S., they did, hmm. even if they kept the same diet. Wow. So it wasn't the diet. Right. It was expectation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've always felt, Casilda and I talk about this all the time, how our experience of things, like what we were just saying with language, Mm -hmm. is framed so deeply by the culture in ways that we're not aware of, that it's so helpful if you can step out of that. And so I do that. You know, I'm 56. And, yeah, I forget things. But I say i see my friend saying oh my god i'm having a senior moment like (laughs) and the way i frame it for myself is i just have so much more information in my brain that it takes a little longer to access it right it's cool because the worst thing you can do is get stressed out about it yes whatever it is
2: because stress shuts down all the pathways it
1: does exactly right so and a
2: lot of what you know might not even be in your brain it's in your body
1: well, and then so. we get into the field thing, and like maybe the brain is is tuning into something. I mean, you know, that's probably more uh, hippy dippy than you want to get into mm. with your hard science I mean, background. Well,
2: no, I I have been so in the kind of the transdisciplinary ness of of my career and training, I found myself over a series of years uh, among some hard, very hardcore nuclear magnetic resonance scientists and again one of those moments of just complete misinterpretation but it turned out to be completely appropriate and um, there are these meetings called Gordon conferences that happen every two years and there are are hundreds of them because they're very small sections of scientific fields of people that get together every other year to discuss the state of the field, um, emerging findings you know controversies all all kinds of things and when i was going through the list as a as a new new scientist um our institute director said, you should go to a Gordon conference, find one. And so I went to two, I went to one on dopamine and one on nuclear magnetic resonance, thinking, oh, I'll be among imaging scientists. These are the modern day Einsteins, the guys doing magic angle spinning and all of the you know, the chemical shift imaging, I mean, the nuclear pieces of imaging. So very different than human imaging. Mm-hmm. And I, I ended up winning their Al- Alfred Sloan Travel Award and um the head of the meeting told me at the end he thought i was a spy because they never nobody knew who i was and here i show up and he said but then you kept coming and then you started getting into the conversation and he ended up offering me his flask like the last night of the oh, meeting nice. you know that's but, an honor right exactly so i was i went to 3 rounds of these meetings and um and uh, it really started to understand physics in a deeper way of of imaging, and they were very happy to be talking about more applied work, and just fascinated that I had found my way into their you know their community. But very open, um, some of the most down to earth people I'd ever met. Yeah, which one of them, and I forget his name now, but he was at Princeton if he isn't still there, and he was looking at. Uh, magnetic resonance outside of the body ah, and and, f- and from the head, looking for residue, for lack of a better word, of internal processing.
1: Which some people might see as an aura
2: mm-hmm.
1: energy outside. Right. I mean, I mean we it can know be talked about in very woo woo kind of ways, right. Right. but
2: um, very serious physical scientists yeah. studying this and developing. Coils uh, for that that could detect that kind of resonance.
1: Who was the guy, I think, in Montreal or Toronto who did some sort of magnetic resonance stimulation in the brain that induced states of religious I know, awe? I you don't, know, don't talking remember, about? yes, like, but
2: I know what you're talking about. Just yeah, this by is sending
1: like, a pulse into the brain and people mm-hmm. felt in the presence of God. Yeah, Very the TMS interesting. and the transcranial yeah, that's what it stimulation. Was. yeah, yeah. Yes. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Listen, I know you have a meeting coming up, but I don't know if we've already messed that up, but... um Thank you so much for taking time.
2: Oh, this was a pleasure. And
1: I'd love to do this again when it's about twenty degrees cooler and I can participate.
2: Great, let's schedule that.
1: <laughs> I feel like I was running along behind you, trying to hold on here. Oh no, it
2: was fun. I, Thank you, Chris. And
1: where can people? Uh, you do consulting work, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So people can find Ghost Ranch online, come out here for a workshop. Mm-hmm. But as far as helping families with um, kids right. who are having problems, how can they find you?
2: They can find me at the The number two, the letter E dot com. The two E.
1: The two E dot com. And are your scientific papers available there as well?
2: There are links to all my open publications. Great. Yeah, and lots of ways to contact me.
1: Great. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you, Lane. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give twenty bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at BasinAndRangeBand.com If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, Thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those t-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design t-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at Carsey Blanton. Dot com, C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear Which is called Smoke Alarm And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem While you still can Because, ladies and gentlemen You're gonna die one day Here's to you, Bennett
0: He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to what's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal